0: This is the third talk in a series of talks on the seven virtues. It is titled Justice. Recorded January 14th, 1996 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon.
1: Today we're going to talk about justice, and this is the third in a series of talks about the seven virtues that we practice here at the center, which are courage Humility, justice, patience, gratitude, mercy, and joy. And the uh, the virtue of justice is the most difficult uh, for us to talk about here and for us to understand today because it's embedded from a spiritual point of view in a worldview that is uh, uh, gone for the most part, at least in our culture. Uh, the materialist worldview has desacralized the cosmos. Uh, it's stripped it of any uh, sacred qualities in nature. And so, as a result, we don't think of justice as related to anything spiritual. Uh, we think of justice today, we tend to think of justice exclusively in terms of things like civil rights, or political equality, or social and economic equality, or, or fairness, or something of that nature. And at least from a materialist point of view, all of this is a human invention. It has no basis in any sort of cosmic order. It's uh, it's just the things that human beings have thought up. And from a materialist point of view, justice is a purely human standard. We develop the standards of justice and then uh, we judge the, a system or a person or whatever by those standards. Now, first of all, it's important to understand that these conceptions of justice and of the cosmos itself uh, are very, very recent, historically speaking. Uh, they, they've developed over the last 300 years, and they've come out of very specific historical development in the Western world, in Europe and America. Uh, the whole conception of a, a political equality, for instance, rose up during the uh, 17th and 18th centuries and it was basically a an idea of the capitalist the bourgeois class that was struggling for power and it was designed to first of all attack and replace the old medieval idea of political power which was that there there were fixed classes in society there was a hierarchy of classes the king and the nobles and the peasants and so forth and this was uh divinely ordained by God, the kings ruled by the the, the divine right. And so uh, power sort of came from God and then sort of trickled down through kings and nobles to the people and so forth. And when the bourgeoisie wanted to overthrow this order, they had to have some other philosophy of politics. Where does power come from? Well, it comes from the people. It doesn't come from God. It's based on the, the polis, the populace. And then the uh, ideas of uh, social and economic equality uh, were basically born in the 19th century and they came out of the socialist and utopian movements of the 19th century, which were critical of the new capitalist system that the bourgeoisie had established, because it seemed in many respects to be uh, very ruthless. And so the idea was to extend uh, political equality to also social equality and and uh, extreme forms of uh, economic equality. Uh, perhaps the most famous example of this is Marxism. Uh, in Marxism, the idea is to have a society with no classes whatsoever, get rid of all class structure, and also where there's a completely uh, equitable distribution of goods. It's not quite that everybody gets the same amount, but uh, everybody gets what they need. So these, these ideas that we, uh, tend to, we have now in the 20th century are, are very, very recent, and then civil rights, which we talk about a lot, are simply a definition of the freedoms or privileges or whatever that citizens would enjoy under those sorts of systems, a capitalist system or a socialist system. So, uh, and it's very important to note, by the way, that they are civil rights, not divine rights. This is a part of the result of the secularization of our society. So then, justice today tends to mean, really, the realization of those rights. And injustice tends to mean just the frustration of those rights. That's the way most people think about it in Western society anyway today. The question then is, in what way is justice a spiritual virtue? So, in order to understand the uh, spiritual virtue of justice we have to go back to the sacred societies of the past and uh, see what justice meant in those societies. Uh, So we have to do a little bit of history here. I have to give you a little background so we can understand what it means from a spiritual point of view or begin to understand it. In sacred societies, the human social order is part and parcel of the cosmic order. man the human being is a microcosm which reflects the macrocosm. And there's a, there's a Hermetic aphorism that describes this. As above, so below. Which means that everything is reflected throughout all the realms of, uh, existence. The same principles are at work, including in human life and in, uh, uh human societies. Now, it's important to understand that there's no real discontinuity between the above and below or the various, uh, if you like, dimensions of uh, existence, that uh, this con- discontinuity, this idea, this sense that we are somehow different from the rest of nature, that we stand out from the rest of nature and the rest of the cosmos is uh, in, in sacred worldviews, particularly uh, in mystical worldviews, somehow a delusion. Uh, it's the result of uh, a delusion, or in the West, it's the result of sin. But in this sense, meaning an error that we make, an error of perception that we make. So the great Hindu mystic, for instance, Shankara says, all things from Brahma, the creator, down to a single blade of grass, are apparently diverse names and forms of the one Atman. They are simply appearances and not real. Now notice he's, uh, he hasn't gone into detail here, but he's describing a structure here from Brahma, not Brahman, the, the ultimate principle, but Brahma, the, the creator god, all the way down to a single blade of grass. This gives the idea of this cosmic order. All this is really just an appearance, and underneath it there's some reality, a transcendent reality, the Atman. Now listen to uh, this Kabbalist scholar Gershom Sholem, who's summing up uh the whole Kabbalist uh, tradition's view of uh, creation and the cosmos, the Kabbalists, of course, are the, the mystics of Judaism. Originally, everything stood in direct mystical rapport with everything else, and its unity could have been apprehended directly and without the help of symbols. Only the fall has caused God to become transcendent. Its cosmic results have led to the loss of that original harmonious union and to the appearance of an isolated existence of things. So in the in the Cobbler's view, anyway, you see that before the fall, it's the, you know, Adam and Eve and all that, uh, there was this uh, unity. And because of the fall, now there's an appearance that things are isolated from each other. The same idea, for instance, we find in Buddhism of codependent arising. Everything is interdependent. Nothing exists or stands on its own. It's all interrelated. It's all part of the same great tapestry, if you like. And each, uh, each element of it is a thread woven through the whole thing. Now, one of the most potent symbols uh, for this unity that was used in, in primal uh, societies was the symbol of the circle. And you'll find this in many, many societies, East, West, and Europe, Asia, Africa, Native Americans, and so forth. And uh, the circle is a sort of a, a symbol that is a great organizing principle, a way of understanding the unity of the whole cosmos at every level of existence. So, for instance, uh, at the cosmic level, uh, the heavens revolve in a giant circle around the earth. Remember, this is in worldviews where the Earth is the center of the world. So you go out at night and you see the great fear of stars revolving around the Earth. And then the sun and the moon in these cosmologies go around the Earth in circles. They circle the Earth, right? And the planets. The Earth itself is Circular. So if you climb up to the top of a tall mountain and you have an unobstructed view and you look around, you see the horizon is a great giant circle. The earth is conceived as a great circle. The seasons are circular. In fact, all of time is circular. You know, we go from a great round from winter through spring to summer to fall back to winter again, round and round. And even day and night alternate in a circle, go round and round. Then this circularity is reflected in biological life. For instance, uh, waking and sleeping follows day and night, but it's a circular rhythm in our biological life. Uh, Women's menstrual cycles come around every month. They come around. Uh, The phases of the moon is another example of this cyclic existence. The early uh, hunters noticed that uh, the herds that they hunted migrated In great circles. They'd go north in the summer and come back south in the, in the fall. And so they go through these great circular patterns. And then later when human beings learn to plant and to reap and so forth, there's a circular rhythm of agriculture. You plant in the spring, you harvest in the fall, uh, you plant again in the spring and so forth. And then this is reflected in, um, social or cultural life. Uh, tribes used to set their camps in circles, many Native American tribes. Uh, and then later villages were arranged in circles. And then, uh, for instance, uh, devotees of many traditions circumambulate holy sites. Uh, it's very common, for instance, in Buddhism to circumambulate temples or the stupas with the relics of the Buddha. And then many religious festivals follow the seasons. They're circular. There's Easter comes at the same time, comes around again and again. In fact, many of the festivals celebrate the circle of the year. In uh, the East, the whole uh, of life is called a cyclic existence, which gives you this sense of this circle. So all these activities, including the cosmic ones, by the way, not just human, all these activities are sacred because they res- reflect this sacred order of the cosmos, which is itself a manifestation of the divine. So what the sun and the moon are doing are sacred. What the stars are doing is sacred. You know, all so what the animals are doing is sacred. Life itself, in that sense, is sacred as long as it's uh, part and parcel of this overall divine order. Now, this uh, order is not only divine; it's not only uh, a manifestation of the divine, but it is also a moral order, or a just order, or a good order, or whatever you like to call it. Uh, and we can see this in the names it's given by various cultures. Uh, for instance, the the Tao is the the Chinese Tao is the Tao Te Ching. It's the way of virtue, not just uh, some sort of uh, impersonal or neutral way. It's a virtuous way. Uh, rita is a uh, uh, Vedic concept of this underlying law. Uh, everything follows rita. The, the rivers follow rita. Human life follows rita, if it's properly lived and so forth. It's, a, it's the just or proper uh, way things happen. Dharma, the wheel, again, the circle, the wheel of the law, the Buddhist dharma. And even in Hinduism, the dar- dharma is uh, an idea of your duty. Uh, that this is a just or moral way of uh, things happening. So our word in the Bible, righteousness, is a translation of the Hebrew word tzedek. Uh, if anybody speaks Hebrew, and I'm not pronouncing it right, correct me, S-E-D-E-K. And uh r- the word righteousness applies... Again, to all levels of existence. For instance, God's laws are righteous—the Ten Commandments. There's a righteous, but also uh, weights are, r- are righteous if they're the proper weights, you know, a just weight in, in measuring uh, bartering in a marketplace. And then um, we have this in the ancient Greek conception of dikē or decay, Again, I don't know quite how you pronounce it—d i k e. We spell it in English, which is the way of justice. It's a very, very similar idea to, in, that we find in Taoism—the way of virtue. And then the word justice itself comes from a Latin root, jus, uh, which means uh, law. And that is derived, though, from an earlier word, ius, which uh, shows its religious origins because that meant to be bound by a religious oath, a sacred oath. So we have in all these concepts, not only do we have this uh, overall sense of the uh, a cosmic order of things of which human beings are very much a part of, which is all a reflection of the divine, but that it is a good order, a moral order, a just order, and why is it good? I mean just because God made it good now there 's another reason, and it has to do with uh, actually what uh, mystics uh, in all cultures and all societies, how they define goodness, what is good is what is conducive to happiness. So this order is good, it's moral, it's just because conforming to it is essential for human happiness. Again, at every level of existence, in any, any way you want to define it. For instance, again, going back to the biological level, uh, all biological life depends on the maintenance of this order. The animals depends, uh, depend on plants. And the plants depend on the weather. And the weather depends on the seasons. You know, uh, an early frost will kill off your your, uh, crops. So there's this sense of this great chain of being uh, at a a biological level. That uh, plants and animals don't exist in a vacuum. It's all interdependent on weather and seasons and uh, whatnot. Uh, And for for life to uh, succeed, just to sustain itself, All these things must be kept in a just proportion, a proper balance. Today, we would say an ecological balance. If something gets out of balance, then, and the order is thrown off, then we'll suffer. If there's no rain, if there's drought, then your, your crops won't grow and you'll, you'll be faced with starvation. Then at the, um, social level, social harmony depends on maintaining this order in life. So the, the family has to have a certain order. People in the family have certain chores and duties and obligations and whatnot. And then within society itself, there has to be an order in the division of labor. The hunters hunt and the planters plant and the fishermen fish and so forth. And then in the administration of law, or going back earlier in custom, there has to be a just order in this administration. It can't just be arbitrary. The laws have to be uh, consistent. This is why in almost all... Uh, pre-Western societies, kings were sacred. They were sacred because they were the instruments for enforcing the just sacred law. And then even personal happiness in these societies uh, depends on conforming to this order. And in this case the order manifests as for instance the, the specific laws of God like the Ten Commandments in the, in the West uh, in Christianity and Judaism, or in, it's given in the Quran, the commandments given in the Quran, or in the East, the uh, laws of karma. And this means that your, uh, your personal actions have quant- consequences for yourself because they follow this law. The Buddha sums up the Eastern version very well when he says, the doer of evil reaps suffering here and hereafter. The doer of good reaps happiness here and hereafter. In other words, good and evil now are defined by the law of karma, and if if you do not follow the law, if, if you get out of whack with the law, so to speak, then there'll be consequences. You'll have suffering uh, as a result. The Bible's version is uh, basically the same thing, though it's conceived differently, and one of the most beautiful um, statements of this is the little biblical verse, as you sow, so shall you reap. And so it's understood that, uh, that our actions have consequences, that we must conform to the law as it manifests in our individual daily lives if we want to be happy. And then justice in these societies then is, first of all, this proper ordering of things and events at all levels of existence, whether it's cosmic or social or personal. And Rumi, the great Sufi poet, uh, sums this up uh, again very succinctly. What is justice? To put something in the right place. What is injustice? To put something in the wrong place. So this is a quite a different idea now, you see, of justice that we have just when we think of civil rights and things like that. But the maintenance of a just order also involves something else. It involves restraint and sacrifice. And of course, the word sacred comes from sacrifice. That's They share the same root. And this, again, is at every level of existence. For instance, in many societies, the cosmos itself is conceived of as arising out of a sacrifice. Uh, Here's a description of the Vedic uh, uh, concept. The gods of old sacrificed Purusha, the prototypical man, to form the world. From him was born the world egg, the creatures of the air, the animals, both wild and tame, the Vedas, the four classes of man, the moon, the sun, the sky, earth, atmosphere, and the gods of the three regions. God's sacrificing, sacrifice the victim. These were the earliest holy ordinances. So uh the idea is this whole world comes about is a kind of a divine sacrifice. Uh, in Particularly in mystical cosmologies, for instance, in Kabbalism and in some uh, Christian um, cosmologies, this world is, is God's uh, sacrifice of God's perfect unity and formlessness. In order to get form, you have to sacrifice this. So, for instance, in the Kabbalist version, the first act of divinity in creation is to withdraw uh, God's perfection, so to speak, and to make a space for uh, a whole gradation of forms uh, to come into being. Nature, in, in obeying the, uh, the cosmic order, also is, uh, uh, acts in, in restraint and with sacrifice. For instance, the sun restrains itself in these uh, cosmologies in its path. <coughs> It it uh, limits itself to going in a proper path. You know, if it starts to wander all over the place, the earth will burn up. There'll be fire and, and heat and destruction. And it also sacrifices its light for the life of the planet. It's giving its light. Uh, the sky sacrifices rain so that animals and plants and so forth may live. But it must do this with restraint. Because if it gets out of hand, we have flood if it doesn't restrain itself. So there's restraint and sacrifice. The the sun and the sky, they, they conform to this order by restraining themselves, but they sacrifice. They give freely of themselves. Plants and animals sacrifice their, their bodies for food. We know this very well, for instance, Native American traditions. There's this tremendous gratitude and respect and understanding that the buffalo you kill or the deer you kill has, in a sense, sacrificed itself for you. It's given you something. And then, so too, uh, humans must also perform sacrifices in order to ensure that nat- nature's bounty continues to flow. So this is why in, in many, many uh, uh, primal societies, there's there are these uh, animal sacrifices. You sacrifice your horse or cattle or flowers or food you place on the altar of, of the gods and so forth. And this is giving back to the gods, to this divinity, what you have received. So you sacrifice things that are valuable to you. The Gita says, he who does not sacrifice is a thief. Because in this conception of things, it means you're taking from uh, the universe, the cosmos, but you're not giving anything back. So it's kind of like thieving. And the social order also requires sacrifice and restraint in order to be sustained. People must restrain their personal selfish desires. Just because you want your neighbor's property or or, uh, spouse or uh, cattle or something, you don't just go and seize it. You have to exercise self-restraint on your own desires that arise. You have to particularly exercise restraint in trying to uh, seize positions of authority that aren't rightfully yours. One of the great themes that runs all through Shakespeare's political plays, anyway, is the, the disastrous consequences when ambitious men try to uh, seize the throne. For instance, Macbeth is, a, is all about that. It plunges the society into civil war and chaos because of this inordinate ambition, uh, unjust ambition. And then social life requires not only restraint to these things, but sacrifice. And parents have to sacrifice for their children, uh, warriors even sacrifice their lives to defend the community. Almsgiving and charity is all, uh, to help out the, the poorer members of the society is all about a self-sacrifice, giving of your own wealth to support the, the community as a whole. So even at this, um, uh, very personal level, uh, justice here requires restraint and self-sacrifice. So these are the, uh, conceptions of uh, justice that were held in these sacred societies, and you can see it's it's, uh, it's much broader, uh, an idea, a principle, than just a narrow little political or social philosophy. It it, it relates to the whole cosmos, and it's part and parcel of a, of a whole way of viewing the order of the cosmos. Now, obviously, uh, science has changed a lot of these conceptions for us. You know, we no longer, for instance, believe that uh, sacrificing uh, a uh, horse is going to uh, necessarily bring us good weather and whatnot. And I'm not at all suggesting that we should go back to these exoteric views of how the universe works. However, although materialism as a philosophy denies any sacredness in the cosmos, uh, that doesn't mean science necessarily does. Or that science doesn't see uh, an overall... Uh, order quite similar to this, and there are already hints and indications of that, and I don't claim we have a, a completely worked out worldview yet, but, and we can't go into this too far this morning, but one of the things you might want to think about is, for instance, in physics, the universe can be seen as the result of broken symmetries. Initially, there was perfect symmetry. Now, perfect symmetry means formlessness. There's no, uh, in perfect symmetry, there are no distinctions. And so the whole universe manifests uh, mathematically through the breaking of symmetries. So we have here very much a similar uh, conception expressed in mathematical terms um, in physics that we find in these old sacred worldviews. Then we have uh, uh, ecological notions about how this interdependence of all things. And so we replace uh, this idea that um, perhaps you have to make... uh, be restrained and make sacrifices in the terms of sacrificing animals to get the rain to come and all that. But if we are going to develop an ecological uh, conscience, we need what? Restraint and sacrifice. Do you know what I mean? We have to restrain ourselves and we have to sacrifice our own immediate little pleasures and stuff to what? Maintain the proper order of things. So I just want to give you some suggestions how these ideas can be carried through and translated into modern terms without thinking you have to go run home and and kill your bunny or something or your, your dog, you know. But uh, mystics, particularly, had an even more profound meaning in the, in the term justice. And in their view, justice is not simply necessary for uh, sustaining biological life and social harmony, uh, or even just getting rewards after death, you know, avoiding uh, the consequences of bad karma and reaping the benefit of good karma or going to heavens instead of hells or whatever. Justice is really a way of perfection, as Jesus called it when he said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect. This is very uh, startling, radical teaching here. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. As above, so below. Again, we see this principle at work here. So what does this mean? Justice is the path, the way, the completion Perfect means, by the way, originally, par means to complete. That's what it really means. The completion of the circle of human destiny. Again, a circle here. That we come from the divine, and the completion of this is a return to the divine. And in that return to the divine, to attain the perfect happiness that is the happiness of the divine. Lao Tzu gives us a sense of this when he writes about what happens if you follow what he calls the constant virtue, we could say the the just way, the way of the Tao. Uh, If you follow the constant virtue, virtue, then the constant virtue will be sufficient, and you will return to being the uncarved block. The uncarved block is an image, a symbol for the Tao, the way, which is again formless. An uncarved block has no form. So it's the return of form into formlessness. Again, Gershom Sholem describes the Kabbalist uh, path of tikkun. Tikkun, the path to the end of all things, is also the path to the beginning. The doctrine of the emergence of all things from God becomes its opposite. The doctrine of salvation as the return of all things to God. Same idea and Kabbalism is in Kabbalism as in Taoism. You see when we talk about how mystics uh, from different cultures, very different cultures, uh, have not just the general ideas that we're all children of God or something like that, but very specific ideas of how all this works. Krishna tells Arjuna, the disciplined man, that is the man who follows the, the right way, the orderly way, with joy and light within, becomes one with God and reaches the freedom that is God's. So, this whole spiritual path may be seen as the, the great path of return, as it's sometimes called. Then the practical question though is, if if this spiritual idea of justice is the idea of following a proper order in life and in the universe and so forth, if it's all enmeshed in the idea that the whole universe itself has a kind of just order, what would this mean practically, for us today, to practice this virtue of justice? How would you actually put it into practice? How would you begin? Well, spiritually speaking, justice begins with yourself. And this is, again, somewhat different from the way we normally think of it in our culture. We think of justice, I'm going to fight for justice, the first thing I'm going to do is run out and and join uh, some protest or, you know, an organization that's fighting for justice or whatever. We don't stop to think that maybe justice begins at home. And the justice is, uh, usually associated with, in, in our terminology here anyway, the third stage of the spiritual path. And by that I mean the, the, uh, the first stage of a spiritual path, that is the, the awakening of faith, the awakening of some intuition. Uh, that there's something greater to life than just, uh, you know, uh, getting enough food for your body and going to sleep and maybe getting some extra baubles of possession and watching TV, uh, that maybe something more to life and then beginning this search, uh, this requires courage. Right away, a spiritual path requires courage because you're entering the unknown. You're, you're departing from the, uh, from the known. And whenever we enter the unknown, that requires a certain amount of courage. The second stage is the investigation of uh, teachings and and paths and ways and methods and means. And so you might go to groups like this or other groups or start reading and whatnot. And this requires uh, humility because you can't learn anything new unless you are humble enough to know that you don't know everything. And that's a big step for a lot of people, you know. It was for me. Uh, you have to admit you don't know everything to be ready to, to uh, receive any sort of new knowledge. So humility comes into play. Now, the third stage is what I call the unification of self. And this is the stage that justice comes in. Uh, so what does this mean, the unification of self? Well, after you've gone through the first two stages, you've, you've You've got some indication in, in, outside or inside that there's something greater to life and you, you start this exploration, you start uh, investigating teachings and so forth and you find a path, you begin to see at least a part of the path that you're going to take. There comes a time when you have to make a commitment. When you have to stop being a, a dilettante and a dabbler and experiment. And by the way, that's very good in the beginning, you know. Not everybody should experiment in the beginning and, uh, check out a lot of different teachings and teachers and whatnot. But at some point, if, if this is going to pay off for you, you really have to make a commitment. So this making a commitment really means, uh, it, it happens, I should say, at the, at the point where pursuing the spiritual path becomes the priority of your life. And that means, once it becomes the inward priority of your life, that means, for most people, a certain amount of reordering their outward life, at least. You have to make time to uh, read, to go to uh, teachings, to do practices like meditation or chanting or whatever. You literally have to start rearranging your life. But inwardly, it means also putting your own house in order, as we would say. Uh, it means starting to discipline yourself. It means starting to restrain worldly impulses and desires and and passions and so forth for the sake of the spiritual uh, quest. It also means sacrificing immediate worldly gains and profit and pleasure for a greater spiritual happiness that mystics say is is, uh, possible down the line of ways. Uh, In short, it means mastering oneself. Or as the Lakota uh, Indians say, which I love this phrase, owning oneself. For instance, Sitting Bull was described as a, a person who owned himself. That means he doesn't get excited by things that are happening outside. He's, in, he's uh, in control of himself, we'd say. He's got a certain amount of discipline. He owns himself. So this putting your house in order, making this commitment, deciding that the spiritual life is the priority in your path, and then reordering your life accordingly is what justice means in terms of your personal life. Now, I must say, this cannot be done simply by a matter of willpower. You can't just make a sort of a New Year's resolve, uh, decide I'm going to go on a spiritual path and do this. For most people, and this doesn't necessarily happen all at once, but for most people it requires a real conversion of the heart, if you like. It's something that happens much deeper level than just the intellectual level. Uh, You really begin to feel the necessity for doing this, a certain, in a sense, being called or driven maybe or whatever. And it's called, for instance, in Western traditions, uh, it's an act of grace, you know. Uh, Grace just indicates that it's something that's happening beyond your your volitional powers to make it happen. But I must say, it won't happen to you unless you really sit down and take seriously and ponder questions like, who am I? And where did I come from? And where am I going? And what am I doing with my life? What's my life going to mean? It's through really that self-examination and really taking your own life seriously and saying, hey, I mean, you know, this is what I have here and asking yourself, what am I doing with it? Am I just wasting it, chasing after very transitory and ephemeral things? Or is it really going to mean something? by taking the time to ponder that you will start to touch into these deeper layers of the psyche if you like but once this has happened to you once you've really made this commitment and this is uh, the spiritual path has become a priority in your life then you do have to exercise willpower it takes a certain amount of willpower to get yourself to sit down and meditate you know in the beginning it's fun and all it's something new but in the long run It takes discipline to uh, practice uh, precepts, to really follow them, to take them seriously, to see what would happen if I tried out these precepts in my life. So it's really, uh, uh, justice is really about establishing commitment and discipline in your life at the personal level, that's what it means spiritually. And once you've established some justice, some order, some rightness in your own life, then you can start to reach out and practice this in uh, larger and larger circles around you. I don't mean this happens to happen, you know, A, B, C, but they overlap somewhat. But one of the things that, um, at least I learned in my life, if you haven't uh, done this inner work first and you rush off to practice justice in the world, you uh, are very apt to make things worse. And you won't be skillful at it at all and you because you don't know yourself at all. And this is one of the great faults of youth. I was the great fault of my youth, I can tell you that. You know, I was all anxious to change the world without ever thinking that maybe something had to be changed inside. Because everything, of course, I blamed on the world. Because I was perfect and good. And my parents had screwed up the world and it was a mess. And it was all their fault. Or the capitalist fault. Or somebody's fault. But not mine, certainly. But taking responsibility, looking inward, and reordering your own life, that gives you a basis, then, to start um, thinking about justice in a larger context. So, how can you practice it? Well, again, the first things you can do in relationships to other people around you is to start being meticulous about those precepts that embody the two principles of restraint and sacrifice. For instance, don't steal. Don't cheat people, you know. Uh, Don't take what isn't yours. Now, most of us here probably think, well, we don't normally do that. But if you watch carefully and, and try and really be meticulous about this, uh, you will find that that really there's a lot of improvement that you can make. Uh, and, uh, this is tax time. This is a wonderful place to watch here. <laughs> tax time coming up. Yes. You see, and now you watch how the mind rationalizes and, oh, well, the government's rotten anyway and they misuse my money and this and that and so forth. But these are the laws of the society you live under. And one of the first principles you can just look at, listen, if a law is not obviously unjust, then you should obey it. There are some laws that, you know, that there's this gray area, and it even gets over to more than gray area. There's some laws in some societies that are obviously uh, unjust, that you have to, it's your duty to not to obey them. But society needs laws. Like traffic laws is another good place to look, you know. The stop sign means Stop when the yellow lights there, you know, instead of speeding through to to get what you want, you know, to get, you know. But you're, no, it's not a serious thing, but you're endangering other people or possibly endangering other people. And you're also putting yourself first above everybody else around you. It's rude, if you like. Rudeness and politeness, these are part of the the unwritten laws that make a society go part of the right order. Some of the precepts
0: overlap, you have patience?
1: Sure, certainly there's some of the virtues. They all overlap and they all go, all roads lead their own. Uh, But you can start to watch these things meticulously. If you want to be a uh, have justice in society, the first thing is you have to be a just person. And by the way, one of the most powerful ways that you help a society become just or maintain justice in a society is to set that example yourself because people watch our actions uh, more than they listen to what we say you know and so if you're gonna start talking and preaching justice you better be able to walk your talk and then uh, practicing uh, justice in relation to nature well, see, we don't think of practicing justice in relation to nature. And then with the, the ecology movement, a little bit more so. But this is really, uh, instead of, I say, going home and sacrificing your dog to bring the rain and all that to keep nature in balance, uh, they didn't do that to be cruel to animals, by the way, in the old days. They did this because it was part of the only just thing to do, given the way they saw the universe. But we can still, from a scientific point of view, uh, the same thing applies. We cannot keep taking and taking and taking from the resources around us uh, without departing from the right way and suffering the consequences. And so, you know, just starting right at home, doing a little composting, sorting your, you know, recyclables and all that, that takes a little sacrifice of your time. It also takes a little restraint, not just to, you know, throw things away mindlessly and whatnot. And these are all ways you can really start, you see, to practice justice before we even get to the great big issues of social, uh, civil rights and whatnot. But uh, uh, people don't think to start this way. Then in relationship with other people, aside from the following precepts and so forth, and, but in human relations, how can we practice justice? <clears throat> Here's a, I want to read you a little quote from Simone Weil, as I, I mentioned earlier, one of the great mystics of uh, this century, and uh, she writes about justice in a very uh, incisive way. She says, The supernatural virtue of justice consists in behaving exactly as though there were equality when one is the stronger in an unequal relationship. Exactly in every respect, including the slightest details of attitude. Does everybody get that? It's, a, you're in a stronger, superior uh, position to somebody else, but you behave towards them as though there was absolute equality. And this is the key here to the fact this is a practice to even down to watching your attitude, your, your accent, how you speak to them and so forth. Conversely, she says, supernatural virtue for the inferior thus treated consists in not believing that there really is equality of strength and in recognizing that this treatment is due solely to the generosity of the other party. That is what is called gratitude. In other words, it's a very different attitude than insisting uh, that you have a right to be treated equal because it's recognizing the reality that that person, your boss or somebody like that, Uh, Doesn't have to, is not constrained by anything but their own inner sense of justice. So it's recognizing the reality of the situation and then responding with gratitude, recognizing that person's behaving justly, uh, not because they have to, not for any selfish reason, but that they are expressing this supernatural quality of of, uh, justice. Notice this is very different from the modern, our modern pretense that people are actually equal, or that they should be. Now, there are forms of equality. We say people are equal before the law, that everybody should be treated accordingly before the law and so forth, but the truth is they aren't. The truth is, some people are richer than other people. Some people have more uh, authority than other people. They're bosses. They're workers. All through society, there is all this inequality. And Simone, by the way, who is herself a socialist and very active in the in the uh, early socialist movements of uh, this century, is not suggesting that we can in any way uh, pretend that people are equal. We have to face the fact that they are unequal, and then we make that, we restrain ourselves, our strength, if we are in the superior position, and we make that uh, sacrifice, that gesture, and that's how justice is established one-to-one one in human relationships. There's a tremendous lucidity in her thinking, and I, I said earlier, I recommended her book Waiting for God, and particularly that chapter in Love of Your Neighbor, she says, nothing romantic about her approach to this. But it's spiritual. It's the recognition that this has to come as a free gift, out of sacrifice, out of love. So, anyway, this is something you can begin to practice. And, again, you can bring begin to practice in very specific ways. When you go to a restaurant, the people who wait on you, do you know what I mean? How do you treat them? Remember what she said exactly in every respect of uh, your accent, your attitude. Do you just dismiss them? Uh, if something you don't like, do you start yelling at them? And, you know, they can't respond back. Usually they'll get fired. What about, um, people who serve you on airplanes, for instance? Uh, store clerks, bank clerks, you know? We, we sometimes often dream about, you know, the great utopian justice. And when we go through our lives with the people that surrounding us, arrogant, you know, abusive, not, not in big ways, in little ways. And what is, what are our lives made up of, really? It's those little things you know? So, you can begin to start to practice this virtue of justice, first with yourself, but then become very attentive, very observant of your relationships and how you treat people. Uh, just simple, you know, let we'll say, little exchanges with store clerks and whatnot. In general, you can take the Bhagavad Gita's advice. Even as the ignorant works selfishly in the bondage of selfish works, let the wise work unselfishly for the good of all the world. And in all traditions you'll find this is a principle of action. Why are you doing this? If you're doing it just for your own benefit, stop a minute, you know? How is this going to benefit other people? You can ask yourself that question. It's by asking yourself, why am I doing this? Simple things, you know? Why am I eating? You can ask yourself that question, so that I can live. Well, why are you living, you know? What are you doing with your life? It gets back to those questions. The key here is selflessness and restraint. Here's how Lao Tzu describes the proper relationship with the Tao. The way, the great Tao. The myriad creatures rise from it, it, yet it claims no authority. It gives them life, yet claims no possessions. It benefits them, yet extracts no gratitude. It accomplishes its tasks, yet lays claim to no merit. See, this is how the divine operates. The divine gives, doesn't ask anything back. Sacrifice does, free gift, right? So, therefore, what what should the sage do? The sage benefits the people, yet extracts no gratitude. Accomplishes his task, yet lays claim to no merit. In other words, if you want to know how to follow that the course of justice, the way of virtue, you imitate the way of virtue. You imitate the divine. The divine gives selflessly, you give back selflessly, so to speak. So you could look at it this way. It's only just. However you to conceive of the divine, God, the great way, whatever, it, it gives all this for you not to give back. It just isn't right. It isn't just. More specifically, here's what uh, Ananda Moyamai, she was a great Hindu saint of this century. She says, Surrender yourself to God in all matters without exception. May he do as he pleases with me, who am but a creature of his hands. This should be your attitude of mind. It is personal desire that is the very cause of suffering. Now, notice this. She says, Surrender yourself to God in all things because you are a creature of God's hands. In fact, you and everything. You are a gift from God. You don't own yourself, and you don't own anything. So in a certain sense, you aren't yours to claim or possess. Now, paradoxically, in all traditions, ultimately, the ultimate sacrifice is what most people consider the the kernel of themselves, the 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 very core of themselves, and that is their will, their self will. People often uh, on a spiritual path, particularly, realize they're not really their bodies. I mean, if you examine your body very closely, you see there isn't really a body there. There are all these sensations arising and passing away and and whatnot. There's not really anything there to grab onto, and besides, it's all happening without your permission or, you know, whatever. Uh, and then you even see that you're not really your emotions, that they, like, very much like the weather, they come and go, you know, and this, and that you're not really even your thoughts. This is a harder one to see, but if you meditate, like we meditated this morning, you begin to just see your mind cranks away like that. But the one thing that's really hard to get over this idea that I am not my will, because I sit here and I say, I'm gonna will my right hand to move and, my right <laughs> hand rises, sure enough, right? But if you watch very closely, you will begin to see that, really, this is something that in the Chinese and Buddhist traditions, they would talk about something that actually happens spontaneously. A clue here is to watch how decisions are actually made when you're deciding whether to buy a house or not. And you go back and forth, what Zorba uh, called the grocer's mind, the weighing machine, back and forth. But somewhere along the line, a decision happens. Do you really decide it, or is it something that happens? Anyway ultimately what must be surrendered back to god is self-will and in christian and western terms why because there really is no self-will everything happens by the will of god nothing happens by your will so uh this whole idea of holding out (laughs) uh, claiming your will as something separate is what creates this sense of separation and this delusion of separation so the final uh The final act is the surrender of self-will. Meister Eckhart says, this is what God looks for in all things, that we surrender our will. Now, this is a kind of a paradox, because here, the whole uh, practice of virtue, uh, I mean, the whole uh, practice of the virtue of justice, especially, requires will, willpower. It really does. Putting your house in order and, and becoming disciplined and all that. And now here's Meister Eckhart saying uh, that that we have to surrender our will. Well, Theophane the Recluse, who was a great Eastern Orthodox mystic, explains this. And it really, uh, like a lot of these paradoxes, has to do with these are teachings that are proper and unfold at different stages. And he really sums up, he never mentions the word justice, but he sums up from the mystic's point of view what the whole business of justice is about. He says, but all that relates to this work, this is the spiritual work, but all that relates to this work may be accomplished in two movements of free will, the turning from the outside world to one's inner self, and the subsequent turning from the self towards God. In the first movement, man regains the power over himself which he had lost, and in the second, he brings himself as an offering to God. The free will offering of burnt sacrifice. So we could say ultimately the perfection of justice is the perfect self sacrifice. In the interest of justice, you begin to, in relation to the divine, return those things to God which are God's. And you do this in little ways. You, you start to consider, well, all the the, the uh, uh, stuff you have, the material stuff you have in your life, uh, that's not actually really yours. It's kind of unknown to you. This whole idea of ownership is all a fiction. You might say, well, I worked hard for this and all that. Yeah, but you know, you didn't choose to be born in this society where you had this opportunity to do that. It's just <laughs> been given to you. You could have been born in, uh, you know, Guatemala in a little uh, uh, peasant village. You didn't choose that. That's nothing you did to earn any of that. Uh, you, you, you look around more your own body. It's a gift to you. It's a manifestation of the divine. It's not yours really. More and more, if you start to look at it from that point of view, then you want to put it in the service of all this, the cosmos, so to speak. And you keep doing this with your life until there's nothing left but yourself. Now, by the way, before we get into the last little, uh, act of surrender here, let me say this. This Doesn't mean you have to become a literal external renunciate, uh, you know, and go about the countryside in a loincloth. It really has to do with an attitude about the possessions. That are they mine or are they unloaned from me from the divine? That's a kind of simplistic way of looking at it, but a very good way to look at it. They're, they're, uh, given to you to be used. Meister Eckhart once said, he said, you know, if you, anyone who's renounced the whole world and has not renounced themselves has renounced nothing. But if you renounce yourself, then it doesn't matter if you have the whole world. It's not really actually yours. So this whole spiritual path is a process of uh, stripping away, and if we look at it from the point of view of justice, of giving back what wasn't yours in the first place, returning it, until you get to self. And then when you finally give back yourself completely and totally, surrendered back into the divine, you've come full circle, so to speak, again, circle. You've completed this, this cosmic circle, this order of things in life. You've returned from come from the divine and return to the vine. And then a funny thing happens. You realize that there was nothing but the divine from the very beginning as. I quoted you in the very uh, early part of this, that this is all, in some sense, a an appearance, a delusion. Uh, Nobody denies there aren't appearances here, but they aren't what they seem. What they are is the divine play of God, of the divine. They're the manifestation of the great Tao. They're uh, the lila of Brahman, as the Hindus put it, the dance, the play. They aren't really individual, isolated, Things, the way we experience them, like this little clock we experience as an isolated thing. So all this is God. There was no self separate to begin with. There was nothing separate to begin with. So we could say in a certain sense that the whole play is a play of justice, of this pretending to give out and then to take back and and give and take and give and take. Here's how Lalishwari, a great uh, Hindu saint, uh, Kashmir saint of 14th century, I think, describes her realization. For a long time I wept and cried out for Shiva. I searched before me and behind me, above and below. But when at last I found him, I saw that he was not different from me. Then my heart became full, my seeking ended, and my understanding was complete." So, are uh, are there any comments or questions?
0: Um, I have a sort of a question. you, You say that justice
1: is being in accord with certain principles, you know, like higher principles. I was wondering if you could contrast that with something, well, I was kind of thinking about health as being, coming into accord with certain principles, and I was wondering maybe you could contrast the idea of justice with the idea of health. If you, as far as we understand medicine at this point in time, but if you want to stay healthy, there are certain things you don't do, for instance. <laughs> you restrain yourself, right? Uh, and then uh, you also uh, often have to make sacrifices to stay healthy. Let's say you uh, you know, you love uh, uh, sugar and sweets and fat and so forth, so you have to sacrifice all that if you want to stay at a, at a weight that will be you know, optimally healthy. So all those principles apply right there. The point is, justice here is not, and you can see it clearly, is not a human invention. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's its a, a law. I mean, it's if you don't at least someone obey the law, you're going to suffer the consequences, which will be ill health, right? right. If you obey the law, then uh, that'll be conducive to your happiness. Now, medicine in our culture is not an exact science, and there's a lot of leeway here. You know, sometimes people... Uh, do all the right things and still get, you know, struck down by disease and so forth. But then you have to look at it in a larger context. But yes, I think uh, health is a very good example, of, a concrete example. We can see in our own lives just what these mystics are talking about. That's the whole point. This principle of justice works at every scale, you know, from the most personal to, to greater and greater scales. And there's a very good example. Somebody else, that? yeah, yeah. But isn't that
0: based, isn't it all based on the, the belief? I mean, the faith that we're supposed to be happy. We're supposed
1: to be ah, happy? very, very good uh, question. Because all of um, spiritual teachings, mysticism, the whole thing is predicated on the presumption that you want to be happy. You want to avoid suffering. If you don't want to be happy and you and you don't want to avoid suffering, there's absolutely no reason to go on a spiritual path to do any of this.
0: Um, you mentioned the um, the functional inequality between someone maybe that has more authority or power over someone else and giving a free gift of respect, I guess, mm-hmm. honoring that person and so paying uh, showing gratitude, um, which makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but can you compare that with um, the, the example you've given before of like the, uh, Mother Teresa's, uh, uh, nuns who work with the lepers as the body of Christ itself versus the social workers who are in a higher authority who serve these other people and tend to have some kind of psychological problems with serving these lower beings or third world. Ah, <laughs> country, you know.
1: Well, I mean, I think this is an example of, of exactly the kind of transformation of experience and uh, insight that happens on a spiritual path. And the difference you could say is, whereas the social worker believes, given the context of their situation, that they are in some sense superior. Not all. I'm just this is a way over generalization, but often believes not even consciously necessarily, but that they are superior to the people they're helping. They're more educated. They have the tools, This, you know, and they have a slightly of that parent-child or, or teacher-student, you know, relationship. And at least when you talk to people who are the recipients of this, uh, you know, they they generally resent social workers and hate them uh, because of this, you know. Now, Mother uh, Teresa and, and the Sisters of Charity don't see it that way at all they see it quite the reverse. They see themselves as, in the inferior position, recipients of the divine grace coming through the people they're helping. They see, literally, these people are the incarnation of Christ. So they are grateful for the opportunity to serve. So they respond exactly as um, as um uh, Simone Weil described. But, I mean, looking from the outside, you would say, Oh, they're in the superior position to the people in the street. From their point of view, they're the, in the inferior position. So they are they don't, uh, they don't have the problem of responding with uh, equality to that person. They have the problem of, uh, not the problem, but they, their response is gratitude to that person. Mm-hmm. Now, from the person's point of view, who's being served, just, uh, who would you rather be? Would you rather be treated as though you were divine and somebody is so grateful to be here to treat you, or would you rather be treated as a sort of a dumb, uh, underdeveloped child?
0: So how would a, a system of justice, like an ideal system of justice, deal with actual transgressors and criminals who
1: seem to be causing problems? Punish them.
0: <laughs>
1: no, the Buddha has a wonderful discourse about that. A lot of people think, you know, the Buddha was a pacifist. and you know, He said, um, and he's asked by a soldier, uh, specifically about, uh mean, that we shouldn't fight uh, if we're invaded and that we shouldn't uh, punish, you know, catch criminals and punish them and so forth. And the Buddha said, no. He said, I never said that. He said, uh, life, this life, the life in form is struggle. It's about struggle. There, there's no sense of pretending it isn't. And you must struggle for what is right. He says, but pay very close attention. Make sure that when you fight, if you have to fight, that you don't do it for any selfish reasons, for selfish gain, you know, for booty or this or that, that you're simply doing it at, in conformity with this law of justice because you have to. And when you, uh, if you're going to catch a criminal and punish a criminal and, you know, go through the courts and all that, make sure that you don't do it with any selfish motive, not even motives like revenge and anger and hatred. You're doing it simply because this is the the order of society. If you do not uphold the order of society, there will be chaos and suffering. And the whole Bhagavad Gita begins uh, with Arjuna, faced with fighting this uh, civil war against uh, relatives and friends, uh, uh, and these people, his, his relatives have seized the throne, throws down his weapons and says, I can't fight this war. What's the point? There'll be so much slaughter. Even if we win, it wouldn't be a victory, you know. And and Krishna, God comes along and says, What's the matter with you, Arjuna? <laughs> Gird up your loins, be a man. You've got a duty. Stop being selfish and wallowing in all this self-pity. And the whole teaching arises out of that situation, and the whole teaching is about how to act selflessly. And that makes the difference of whether it's spiritual or not. Not what you're doing, but are you doing it with the sense of sacrifice, compassion, love, selflessness? Or are you doing it to gain something for yourself? Therefore,
0: therefore justice on earth can never be perfect. It's like it only could be perfect in time.
1: Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you see, this is your mind trying to play God. Right? No, no, <laughs> could I'm, it or not could not?
0: It's, it's, um, I have a hard time with, um... The idea that he brought up about criminals, you know, classifying criminals, you know, because I think it's just, um, I mean, you, you class, the only way we could do it is by an act that somebody performs, which we've already categorized as being criminal. So that's limiting our definition. Okay, but is again,
1: now we're getting to semantics. I mean, uh, we could say there are no criminals, but there are criminal acts, and a criminal act has to be punished Okay, or restrained or you know, whatever, however, we want to look at it. Or, real or, or that's
0: criminals that aren't in court.
1: That what the
0: criminals that aren't in court
1: that are in well, court.
0: Would, would, would one say they're not criminals?
1: Read Simone Weil, she's a wonderful, uh, she ca- continues this discussion exactly about the inhumanity of our justice system. Precisely for what you're talking about. Yeah. Because we cease to see criminals as human beings. But she's not denying they're criminals. No, they're, they're criminals. They've done them wrong. Mm-hmm. They're bad and have to be punished. <laughs> this is you know, this is the the difference between a spiritual or mystical ap- approach that is realistic and one that is romantic.
0: But I think criminals are punished nevertheless because of the spiritual
1: laws. Well, got- they're caught in that. Yes, but now you see, we talk at a different level. That's that's at the level of karma and the consequence of your action. But society, order of society, has to be maintained. Look at Bosnia. This is a country where the order broke down, and uh, you know, order, law is tremendously valuable. And we we so spoiled in this country, we don't have any understanding what happens when law and order breaks down. It's really disastrous. It's terrifying. It's anarchy and war and all that. So. It, uh, you know, order is very important. And we work to make it as just as we can. Well, if there are no other questions or comments, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And uh, you're welcome to check out the library, stay and have some tea, and uh, we'll see you all on uh, a future Sunday.